and we are live on YouTube on Friday night. Due to, no doubt, some sort of unfortunate chain of events, uh, you are watching Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. And joining me this week for episode 27, I can't believe we're on 27 already, uh, my guest is a former Guardian, Guardian journalist, nay tech editor, who's previously written two celebrated books, uh, 2014's Digital Wars and the follow-up Cyber Wars, Hacks That Shocked the Business World. Tonight, he's joining me to talk about his latest book, Social Warming, which explores the dangerous and polarising effects of social media. It's an eye-opening and at times terrifying look at the apps that we use every day. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Charles Arthur. Welcome, Charles. Thanks, Adrian. Good to be here. Nice to have you. Yeah. Um, so I thought um, I thought you, you, you're really the sort of jackpot guest for me, and I'll explain why. <laughs> uh so i i do i owe you money <laughs> <laughs> uh i so i run this 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 podcast and um the the three sort of recurring themes that we always come back to are tech politics and dystopia and right. invariably that means that you know one week i'll have super tansky on and we'll be talking about brexit and uh and and pulling the tories apart uh then the next week we'll be talking i'll be talking to some guy who runs a youtube channel and we'll be talking about the algorithm and very tech sort of centered stuff mm -hmm. um with you then we get to talk about tech politics and dystopia all, all in one with sure. yeah we're ticking every box here yeah, I'm bringing the dystopia. Absolutely. Good, good. Yeah, that's what we like. A few few doom lols along the way, if we can. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll start from sort of, I was going to say from the beginning, but let's start from where uh, you were tech editor at The Guardian. Uh, you were there sure. for a few years, right? I was there from uh, near the end of 2005 through to October of 2014. Right. So uh, just short of 10 years. Before that, I'd been doing, uh, I've been the science and technology uh, editor at Times um, at uh, the Independent. I was there for similarly for from '95 until uh, end of 2003. In between, I had a year freelancing, so sort of done you know done my time in the mines, I guess. Right. Okay. And then, so what was it that then made you think? Do you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna get out? I'm just gonna write some books. And and were you was it always a sort of natural progression for you to move into this sort of dystopian? tech like this is how fucked up everything actually is kind of genre I, I didn't look for the dystopian tech you know the dystopian tech found me right. um but i mean i wrote i wrote digital wars when i was uh, when i was actually still at the guardian right. um a publishing company got in touch with me and said we're sure that there's something interesting you could write about these companies you know we think they're really interesting and the first i blew them off and said i mean is there really a book in microsoft apple and google and then then i thought about it a bit more and actually it just seemed like a really interesting thing and that turned and the, the theme that emerged from that from digital wars was that these three companies were going to be gatekeepers for everything that we did really yeah and you know that's very much been borne out google and apple by virtue of having won the smartphone wars and completely crushed microsoft in the process are the gatekeepers for what you see on your on your phone now uh, you know if they were to decide to ban facebook or you know ban Twitter or whatever from having an app. As you've, as you've seen, in, you know, there's been an example where they banned social networks. Uh, Gab, no, it wasn't Gab, it was uh, one of the other ones. Uh, but well, if they ban you, then, you know, you effectively vanish. Right. Um, but the reason why I got out, well, I mean, I'd, I'd had, it had been a pretty intense uh, few years from about 2010 onwards. It was basically just me running the whole technology section. Right. And I, I felt quite burned out after that. I was writing a lot um, and, uh, you know, it's quite a high pressure job in that respect. 
Um, and I could go freelance. And so I did go freelance. I mean, I still, for a couple of years, I continued having a contract with a guardian to write stuff for them. Uh, but since then, I've uh, just been freelance and, and writing. So Cyber Wars, which was the next book, which was, I think, 2018, if I'm remembering right. the date It all flows into each other. Yeah. You know, anything pre-pandemic now is just, I don't know, <laughs> before fair, pandemic. Yeah. Um, but that, that again, was a sort of idea from, from the same publishing company, actually, um, who said, you know, we're sure there's something interesting to write about hacking. You know, do you want to do that? And I came up with the formula just doing a different sort of topic of hacking for each thing. Yeah, you know, one of the ones in there was ransomware, which turns out to be quite a big thing. Who knew? Um, you know, talking to the people who originally came up with the idea of if you're going to do ransomware, how would you do it really well? Right. Um, and yeah, you know, for them, they said, yeah, cryptocurrency is the big thing that that really needs to come through. Um, social warming, though, all my own idea, um, which came about because I did a lecture in Cambridge. I was, I did some work at Cambridge University. Mm. They had a group there called Technology and Democracy, which is looking at the effects of technology on democracy. I did a lecture there which was talking about does technology affect politics or is it vice versa? And I was interested by the the Trump election in 2016, which was decided by tiny numbers of votes, like 10,000 votes in Wisconsin yeah. and sort of, you know, 48,000 votes perhaps out of millions in Michigan and, you know, a, a similar sort of number in Pennsylvania. Those three states swung the whole election. That's what got Trump elected. Yeah. And that's sort of like when something is ju just, you know, warms up just enough to start boiling. And that got me thinking of, you know, comparison because Facebook ads have been very important in that election. Got me thinking about, well, this is similar to, you know, global warming that we see where you, know, you have a very slow, very gradual thing, which is hardly perceptible. And yet it has big effects, mm. which we're starting to see you know, at the moment with, uh, you know, heat waves in the Pacific North, Northwest, uh, freezing temperatures in South America, um, and, uh, you know, pretty rubbish summer over here. It's, it's, it's all those sorts of things. It's all interconnected. Mm. And so if you, uh, I mean, you sort of loosely broadly de defined social warming there for us, but if you were to provide a sort of, you know, a, a two sentence academic, um, uh, definition of social warming for, for the viewers and listeners, how would you define it? So I would say it's the it's the effect when significant parts of the population are connected all the time to social media and where the social media is amplifying content for the purposes of pe keeping people engaged, mm. uh, which has particular effects because of the way that we're wired. Outrage tends to spread faster than nice messages. Fake news, untruths tend to spread more easily than the truth because you can make anything up to be untrue that will grab someone's attention. And it can be outrage often. Um, whereas things that are true, which are nuanced, which are a bit, it's a bit more complicated than you think at first, those tend to spread less well. So you get a sort of effect where everyone is a little more outraged than they were before mm. and a bit more uh, shocked to to hear about this thing um, and there are academic studies that, that back this up that show that the internet is much better at transmitting this sort of stuff than real life is and it's it's that effect where where you feel that that anyone at any moment might be disagreeing with you mm. um, and of course you remember the things where they disagree with you far more than you do the ones where they say yeah sure yeah that's that's right and it's having this effect all the time everywhere 
with people using these things and not really being aware of the effects that it's having on them. But it is a, a, a ratchet effect where it's always increasing, always people having more phones, having more effects on, on their daily is lives. It, do you think it's a sort of a blend of ancient kind of tribal mechanisms in the brain where we are designed to avoid conflict uh, or, or fascinated by conflict? Uh, but at the same time, we're also designed to solve problems. So where we see something that appears to be incredibly wrong and outrageous, then we get, you know, the, the knee jerk biological uh, mechanism kind of kicks in to make us outraged. Is it? Well, I mean, yeah, tribalism is, is actually a survival function. Mm. Because when humans were, you know, when they went through bottlenecks in terms of the numbers of humans who survived, yeah, when you go through the Ice Age, then tribalism is actually really important. You need to all be pulling together. And the people who are not doing their bit, the people who are doing things that are, you know, inimical to the survival of the tribe mm. need to be chucked out. And to be threatened with being chucked out of the tribe equally is is a is a big thing. That's what keeps you in line. If you can be outrageous uh, towards people and it doesn't have any effect, then that that creates a sort of a dissonance for us. But the tribal the tribal nature is very deeply embedded in our psyche mm. because it is you know something that, that really does define us. It helps us to know you know do we trust this person? Do we not trust this person? Are they from our tribe? Are they not from our tribe? Being being thrown out of the tribe you know when they when you're in the ice age or whatever is something which you know that can mean the end of you. Uh, you know the end of your the end of your gene line, uh, whereas staying in the tribe is is really strong. But when you get to the point where it doesn't matter that you're thrown out of the tribe, or or you know the tribe doesn't have the power to throw you out. You know when you're on social media outraging people with the things you say, but no action is taken against you mm. because for the social network it's great that people are paying attention to you. Yeah. Then you have something where you have you know these unintended consequences. You have these perverse incentives where the social network is actually acting to do things that are against you know our, our better natures or, or certainly that uh, work against the intended effects that you want yeah yeah well, like one of the things I, I like about the book is that you don't go in super hard and judge, judgmental on the social media companies uh sometimes i feel like there's a there's an attitude or a narrative that's spun out there which is a greater or lesser extent that, that facebook and google and so on are just they're just evil and and they've designed these things deliberately to make money out of fake news and um uh, and i think the 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 context that you lay with it where you you make it quite clear that these algorithms have been written in a way that actually was for good reasons you know what they wanted to do was they wanted to serve you content that you would be interested in and because you clicked on story a then they're AI or machine learning, their, their algorithm has decided that odds are you're going to be interested in story B now. Um, and it's it's almost presented in the book as though it's it's an unfortunate side effect that our brains are not developed enough to catch up with this technology. Is that, that sort of fair? Have I caught up with that properly? I, I mean, I think that's that's right. I mean, I think it, it goes even, it's, it's even less intentional than that. Mm. You know, that, that um, you know, like I say, like the, the sort of slug line for the book is nobody intended for this to happen. You know, nobody meant for this to happen. Mm. It's in that sense, it's all accidental. You know, they, the, the social networks and I, you know, I've, 
been reporting on these companies for long enough and spoken to enough of these people who have been in them and out of them and people in companies around them who deal with them to know that you know, there, aren't, there aren't people sort of sitting there being Dr. Evil and going, aha, how will we make the world a worse place? Mm. You know, not even Mark Zuckerberg is like that. You know, The worst you could possibly say about Mark Zuckerberg is that he can be pretty naive about the human nature. But um, for himself, you know, I think to say that he's evil is you know, not, not the case at all. Um, you know, Bill Gates, I've met Bill Gates many times down the years. Mm. Uh, and the thing that you would say about him is he's very driven. Mm. But at no point would you say, yeah, this guy has really got a bad <laughs> vibe about him. No, you know, it, you know, he's a very hard-charging businessman. Yeah. And he's got the eye on, you know, he wants to be the guy who comes out ahead. But not at the, not at the cost of necessarily being totally evil. That's just not how it works. And so, yeah, these, the, the systems that these companies have built, they're, they're built around, well, okay, how do we how do we grow big? Oh, okay, we make we make ourselves free and we fund it with advertising, you know, at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, how do we get people to stay with us rather than drifting away to some other network? Well, uh, we have things that are attractive to them. So, you know, we we show them things that they're interested in. We uh, we show them things that they respond to. Mm. Uh, we build algorithms which do this for, you know, for YouTube. We show them videos that other people seem to watch all the way through so we can show them more adverts. And the process by which these algorithms effectively, you know, tap into the outrage mechanisms, the the misinformation mechanisms that we have, the uh, the the tendency that we have just to sort of get obsessed with things, that's all just an accidental function of the the things that the social networks were trying to do. Mm. But it is interesting that. A number of them are now trying to sort of step back from that a little. They're trying to be, okay, we're not trying so hard to hold you in as maybe we were. Oh, really? You know, Instagram, well, Instagram, you know, is possibly the, I think Instagram is possibly the least toxic of the social networks, mm. though that may not be saying a lot. But, you know, when you scroll down in, in, in Instagram, it will say after a while, it's a, okay, you've caught up. That's it. Yeah. You've seen all the posts. And it used to be that that was it. The, uh, but, you know, a few months ago, um, they started doing, oh, here's some other ones you might want to follow, you know, just to spend more time on Instagram. So, yeah. you know, they, they sort of, you know, they they went to the edge and then actually they came back from it and said, actually, yeah, well, we'll just keep people, you know, stuck more on us rather than going off and doing useful things. Yeah, I, I read, I, I'm sure there's a term for this, but um, I read about this a couple of years ago where they said that one of the reasons that these apps are so addictive is that if you're reading a book, you will flick over a page and flick over a page and you get to the end of the chapter and it's clear that that's a sort of juncture uh but these apps are designed in such a way that it is literally like in the industry it's like called infinite scroll um so you never feel like you've reached that end point where you go okay cool that's enough time to get some sleep you like you always feel and like you just mentioned instagram a minute ago but uh it's true of twitter as well right like you you scroll down mm. your timeline and when you hit the end of i don't know the, the recent updates of people that you follow that you're actually interested in then you start getting to stuff like this person that you follow liked this other person's status yes. or <laughs> you might have missed this thing like mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i suppose they're all, all quite deliberate ways of keeping you engaged and keeping you on their app for as long as possible do you think that could it really have been as absent from the minds of the people that build these applications that there could like did they not consider for one second that there might be a detrimental impact on a societal level if they've got millions of people using these apps and 
there are fake news stories going around or it is difficult to catch them when they catch fire and go viral um did they just not consider it did it not enter the periphery or or do you think it was a bit more nefarious where they were like that we're sort of aware of it but you know it's convenient to ignore the issue we'll come back to it i mean if you'd said to rudolf diesel you know when he was inventing his you know the two-stroke or four-stroke engine back in the 1800s mm. said you know there's going to be lo if they have millions of these they're all going to be pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and it'll be really bad mm. you know given that you know the way that carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere had been shown in the 1850s um even so i think he would have said you're crazy that could never happen you'd never get enough you know uh, the thing about it is that predicting how virality is going to affect things and, and how it's going to take off is really hard to imagine. I mean, you know, for Twitter, when the um, plane crashed into the Hudson mm. and a guy tweeted a photograph of it, and that went around the world really fast, even though Twitter at that time, this is 2006, I want to say 2006, but that's, it was a, too new then, it must have been 2008, I think. Mm. I should, I should know it off by heart. It's a fact in the book. The retweet wasn't invented until 2009, but you could still copy a tweet and, and send it out. Yeah. And this tweet of the plane in the Hudson, you know, it's crazy. We're going out to it on the ferry to pick up all the passengers. Um, went around the world, beat all the news networks by, you know, at least 15 minutes. Mm. Um, was the first actual picture from the, from the event. And Twitter, the people in Twitter were all gathering around their screens going, what has happened? We, we seem to be doing something here we're having an effect on news this is amazing mm. yeah and in that sense you would think well this is great and then you had the arab spring in 2011 where you know you're, you're getting reports apparently from the ground of you know what's happening in iran and stuff um and again you know why would you think that's bad it seems pretty good um so to be i mean you'd, you'd have to be a hell of a you know philosopher to to see from there forward to go you know what this might actually lead to you know an insurrection where people are trying to break into the u.s capital because they've been told by someone that uh, you know the u.s election was stolen from them mm. you know, you'd really you'd you'd be pretty good at drawing con you know drawing conclusions from quite thin data yeah i suppose it's one of those situations where it's like well it's easy to look back now and ask these questions in retrospect it's not so easy when you are a um uh, a growing company like twitter was around that time um and you don't have i think i'm right in saying perhaps you can correct me but a lot of these apps in in though in that sort of period of time did not have a particularly great like revenue generation model right they were working on investment money uh and on the basis that eventually we'll figure out how to monetize this um so i suppose in that sort of environment in that kind of boiler room mentality probably what they were thinking is let's grow 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 let's you know the, the idea that they have to be responsible as they're growing probably not yeah at the forefront yeah no absolutely i mean twitter for ages was was really struggling trying to figure out how to how to make money uh, how to advertise to people you know what what was its sort of advertising thing because facebook worked it out rather sooner mm. that what you could do was to sort of well, you know, don't forget, Facebook tried for a while sort of things of, yeah, we'll, we'll be open for all developers and they'll write games on us and that'll be the great thing. Mm. And they said, no, actually, no, we'll just show people adverts, you know, adverts tailored around their interests and that'll be the thing. Yeah, Twitter for ages was was really struggling with with its advertising model. But, I mean, just, just on that point that you raised about the, you know, did, did people not think about the effects of things? Mm. I mean, you know, when the retweet was invented, 
um, it seemed like, well, everyone's trying to re do retweets. You know, there, before there was the retweet in 20, 2009, um, people would sort of do it manually. So the Twitter engineers said, oh, yeah, OK, we should we should you know build this in. Um, which actually wasn't very popular. Um, people disliked it. People disliked the fact that you didn't have to do the work mm. to uh, to do a retweet, which I know sounds really weird now. Yeah. Um, but actually, people people did enjoy going through the manual task of saying, "Okay, this is worth retweeting," and so I'm going to take the time of doing it rather than just sort of press a button. And for the quote tweet, um, you know, the the people who worked on that came to realize afterwards that it's a terrible right. thing. The quote tweet is used to dunk on people all the yeah. time. And it's 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 an absolutely terrible form of discourse. And I've sort of lost count of the number of times where I've seen sort of people with equally big Twitter followings, might be big, might be tiny, where they where they're trying to have a debate by quote tweeting each other. And you're sort of going down this sort of Russian dolls set of yeah. of uh, Things where they're quote tweeting each other, and you're eventually getting back to the the thing. You think, why didn't you? Why not just have a discussion? Because you want to quote tweet, and because you want to show off to your to your followers, and not just sort of have the conversation between the two of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's so it can be just so hard to to see how these things are going. There work. is a a sort of a satisfying comedic element to it, though. Like if you, and I suppose this is kind of what you're talking about. Is like it's if someone says something stupid or misinformed or just a bit clumsy it is an infinitely more satisfying format of like tweeting to quote tweet it and then put your sort of you know witty or cutting remark like just above it like it works quite well i think if you do like the sort of manual writing out of like rt and then the rest of it like you lose something there there's it's not quite as slick you know so this expression on my face is is me going that is you doing social reading the thing where you're quote tweeting someone to say, you know, for the cutting <laughs> thing is is absolutely what is what is social warming because they see mm. it. They see you being cutting and sort of going, this person really knows nothing at all about the subject. And you know, it's pretty much a given that people don't know about the subject. And the, the reality is that, you know, 20 years ago before social networks, you, you know, you might have seen something in the paper and gone, what a dork. Yeah. Um, but you know, dork person would have been no wiser and could have gone about their day you know, quite happy. But now they've been quote tweeted and dunked on. And so they're a bit less happy. And, you know, there's there's a bit more sort of social friction uh, caused I, by I it. It's... And one of the things that I that I really got to thinking about while I was writing the book was about how I use social media. And I got to, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not the most on Twitter. I, I try I try my very, very, very best not to swear. Mm. Um and uh, I think I just about manage it pretty much all the time. But, um, you know, I, I, and I do resist as far as I can the, the enormous temptation, because I know how strong it is, to, to dunk tweet on mm. people. Um, but I just see it all the time, and I see outrage tweets, and I see, you know, stuff where people are just sort of piling into someone for the fun of it. And you think, I think that is social warming. This is all making people just that bit more agitated, a bit more annoyed, and mm. they're like, well, I'm going to get my own back on you in some way. I don't know how. Well, perhaps I'll just sort of take it out on the you know the next person I'll deal with on Facebook or something. And that for me is social warming. That is that is the absolute classic pattern. Mm. Yeah, I was I was going to say it sort of becomes a uh, a self perpetuating issue then, doesn't it? In that if I quote tweet someone and mock them, uh, and let's assume that it is just a sort of everyday Joe, 
am I going to win that person over to my my side of the argument by taking that approach? Definitely not. Um, and then what's going to happen the next time that that person encounters somebody like me who tries to approach it reasonably with them? They're going to already have this wall up, like uh, a sort of protective, um, divisive understanding of what where that person is coming from, right? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I do try in those situations rather than dunking on someone. I do try to, I mean, first, actually, I look at replies to their tweet. You know, I see whether they've whether they've had responses, what sort of response they've made to mm. stuff. And I tend to try to put my journalist hat on and say, why do you think that? You know, given that there's evidence that this is not right or whatever. I mean, there was a weird one the other day where there was a, there was a lawyer who was, who was taking a graph that a professor of maths at Bristol University had posted. Uh, the professor of maths was looking at COVID cases mm. and was using a log graph in order to show that the the, uh, the doubling time was increasing, that the slope of the, the graph was, was increased. And the, this lawyer said, well, all the, you know, the only exponential thing about this is, is, the, uh, is the numbers on the scale of, you know, you know, for, the, uh, for the graph. And everyone was like, yes, that's how exponentials work. We've been doing this for 18 months. Do you not, do you not understand this yet? And he was sort of very, no, 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 no. That's, it's just so misleading to do this. And, and I sort of felt that that was... Okay, that you've sort of dug yourself into the hole, yeah. and so possibly people can throw some dirt on you now. Yeah, but then there's a like if I say something like I spend a lot of time on TikTok. That's my app of choice at the moment, mm -hmm. and I will put videos up there, political videos, uh, and invariably the comment section descends into the usual you know chaos that you would <laughs> imagine. To... Has it been good today. Um, what did I post <laughs> this morning? It's I was doing something about remember this really oh yeah that's right so i was yeah. talking about the how we live in the in the the actually well sort of yeah um how we're living in an era of a sort of political savior um kind of figure and this is something i i sort of took from an ian dunt tweet the other day and and expanded mm -hmm. on it where he was saying how figures like george galloway uh, Lawrence Fox, Alex Salmond, Nigel Farage, Donald Trump, like all of these people are different. And in many ways, their sensibilities politically mm. are actually quite different. But they as individuals are actually all basically the same person. And what I was saying in this video was that if you if you were writing this period as a political thriller and you sent the script mm. to the producer, I think the producer would send the script back to you and say, you've really overwritten this concept you can't have this look why are you writing the same character like five or six times these people are identical right um because they they invariably have this sort of <clears throat> you know drenched in ego savior kind of uh lean to them sure where they're speaking up for the downtrodden or forgotten but actually really it's kind of about them and anyway this is uh all besides the point i put this uh video up and um the comment section descended into uh, chaos and uh, I you know I, I'm doing a little bit of back and forth with people but I usually try to go in in a sort of civil way where I'll say like like you just said a second ago like why do you think that or have you considered this mm. or but it's I would say it's the exception that people meet that consideration with more consideration I'd say more often than not people are actually mm. incredibly aggressive um and I wonder if, like, 
because they can be because they can be this is the this is the thing and, and you know it's it's a key point again i mean the comment sections are a sort of you know they're a, they're a place for social warming and it's always interesting to the extent to which newspapers have turned off their comments right uh, you know, when I was at the Guardian, we used to have used to have them on all the time because it's like, hey, reader engagement, and then they realised that actually it's only a tiny number of readers. You know, it's like one yeah. percent, and usually the same group, and they're usually just there to to argue. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's a classic thing where people are, are not really there to to hear other views. No. They're here, there to hear their views, and they're aggressive because they can be because there's no comeback. You know, unless you sling them out and ban them yeah. for it. But in that case, they'll just go and find somewhere else. You know, the, the, this is a sort of tragedy of the comments. Yeah, the, the example in your book was uh, was was an interesting one. The uh, Was it the message board? Like, quite a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, the web. That... One of the very, very first yeah. ones, back in the 1980s. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, about the that one user that was... Mm, sure. So the well was, uh, it's, or still is actually, a Californian message board, which was really a precursor, um, a very early use of the uh, of sort of message boards. And um, people there, this is sort of back before PCs were that common. So you had a very small self-selecting group of people using it. And um, people discovered that they liked getting attention for things they wrote and they would sort of spend too much time on it. This is back in the days of dial-up when you're actually paying by the right. minute to use it. And you're also being charged by the by the message board to be on it. So, you know, they had a sort of double, uh, it's a double cost to you as a user, but the message board has an incentive for people to be on it again. You know, it's always this incentive. And there was a user um, who came on there and was quite aggressive towards the other other users uh, it was actually a woman but used a man's name and when uh, the male users of the message board would call her a she then she would uh, retaliate by calling them she which would annoy <laughs> them and she'd say well that's because you annoyed me uh, and she would wind people up but equally it wound them up in a way that the user, the message board owners said this is quite good because it's keeping people yeah. on. Yeah, look at how long these threads are. That she's, and they they sort of said, you know, she's just testing the limits of it. Uh, and this went on for quite a while until eventually they said, oh, okay, okay, this is this is a bit too much. And so uh, they they did eventually ban her from from the board, which she fumed about and wrote a blog post about, uh, which is still up there on the web. You know, you can still find mm. it. Um, but she's possibly the first person to get banned from a social uh, site yeah. for being too antagonistic. But equally, you know, the pattern where she was just antagonistic enough to keep people dialing in and, you know, and joining in the threads and discussing stuff with her, which is all to the benefit of the message board because it was losing money. You know, that's a that's an example that you see again and again down the years. Yeah, I suppose it's a sort of prototype of a, the, the, the archetypal troll. It's an archetype. Yeah, usually. yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and or, or like the original tweet spat, like the grandfather of the tweet spat. Mm, mm, totally. I mean, it's, it's the real sort of ar archetypal person who wants an argument. Yeah. You know, that's really what she she was in that sense. Yeah, she would sort of say things some of which were wrong, um, though you didn't really have the you didn't have Google, you didn't really have search engines, and you'd have to sort of use Gopher and old technologies like that to prove her wrong about some of the points she made. Um, but of course, you know, if you want an argument, it's it's like the Monty Python sketch; they'll just keep on going. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a sort of a, a narrative that gets spun in uh, in the UK. 
and i suppose i've never heard anyone say this in in the us but i imagine that people say it also of trump um but there's this sort of this feeling that sometimes gets expressed where everything was normal until brexit happened like we were just sort of you know pottering along the olympics was great um we weren't particularly divided and then the referendum came along and divided everyone it, it was a gross campaign lots of lies and loads of people on the remain side uh where i would sort of count myself looked at the vote leave side and thought this is a load of rubbish like they, they can't back any of this stuff up there's obvious lies involved like let's not let's not do that but you know a lot of people felt differently and voted for leaving the european union um and we've never really sort of healed that since uh, and i think mm -hmm. there's this feeling that had Brexit never happened or had that referendum not swung the way that it had, that we wouldn't be so divided. But the concept behind your book sort of suggests that with these apps, with their algorithms and with our psychology, uh, that we would actually have ended up being this divided anyway. It was just if it wasn't Brexit, it would have been something else. Um, is that fair? Like, do you think, do, do, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's that's true. I mean, if you want to find the things that were split over, then you could you know look at pandemics and masks and vaccinations and things you know where the the divisions are all sort of slightly different. But yeah, the the, the Brexit vote was interesting, particularly because Facebook advertising played a big part in fueling people's feelings mm. about it. You know, and Dominic Cummings uh, and the Vote Leave team did an incredibly clever piece of work in doing adverts targeted to people who they knew would have certain thoughts about particular topics yeah. and were trying to inflame those those responses you know get them out to vote and you know in some cases people who had never voted ever before you know they'd had multiple elections they'd been you know eligible to vote in tons of general elections never done it but they would come out to vote for this because they were stirred up to feel that this was important. And they were told that it was a once-in-a-generation thing. So, yeah, because the uh, the last vote, the, the one to join the European Union was back in 1973, 4, mm. or 19, something like that, uh, or possibly 75. I don't know, memory fails. But, yeah, it was... The, the fact, though, was that, yeah, the divisions existed already, mm. and that's what enabled the vote to happen. Sure. And uh, it was interesting. Anna Subri, who used to be an MP, was saying the other day uh, on the radio that she felt that the the real schism, the real the nastiness of the discourse uh, around politics in the UK really started happening with the 2014 Scottish referendum. Right. That that one was actually the point at which she noticed a shift in the way that people would respond to MPs, would respond to the media, would respond to media coverage. So, you know, you can trace back, for example, uh, Laura Koonsberg, who's the BBC's political editor, got an absolute, you know, ton of abuse over her coverage of the Scottish referendum because the pro, uh, if you want the pro leave, the, the, the Scottish nationalist side um, felt that she was being too favourable to the UK government, which wanted the uh, the union to remain, and you know that dates back to that. You know all the all the bad will towards her. I mean, you know, I think she's an incredible journalist, um, though she's done some unwise things on Twitter. And you know we can talk about whether Twitter is good for journalism or not. But uh, yeah, and, and 
the the divisions, yeah, the divisions have always been there. I mean, you go back to uh, the uh, 2010 election when Gordon Brown had his encounter with uh, Gillian Duffy, right. who was uh, a Labour supporter, but she was complaining about all these people from you know from all these other countries, and he effectively brushed her off. But it's clear that. You know, the schism there, the thing that would become a, a big sort of tectonic plate, a big uh, you know, sort of rubbing point, a point of real friction uh, that folk leave would use, that that was there already. And, you know, you go back to, you know, 2003, the Iraq war, there was a big demonstration against that. A million people marched against that. So, you know, these, these schisms do exist. But the thing with social media is that it makes it, it puts it in your face all the yeah. time. You know, whenever you open the phone and go on a social app or whatever, then you'll see someone, you know, complaining about this or complaining about, you know, uh, you know complaining about all oh, the immigrants or, you know, why, why is Pretty Patel so horrible? Or, you know, all these, all these ways in which we can express these divisions between ourselves. They're so much easier to express now. So you hear it a lot more. And mm. um, you know, possibly if they'd been around in 2003, we would have been hearing it over the Iraq war. And it's not as if we don't still, but you know, it just gives people far more avenues in which to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was quite interesting sort of at, at the beginning of the pandemic, how I remember, maybe my memory's wrong, but I've, I don't know. I, my recollection is that the, the news coverage um, when when the story was first breaking was that it was quite neutral there wasn't any sort of right or left lean to it it was very much a sort of uh, this is what's happening in the uk and these are the like this is the next briefing that's going to happen and you know there wasn't a sort of culture war element to it um mm. that's only developed over time and i suppose that's a sort of testament to uh, social warming as a concept isn't it in that it it started out a fairly neutral thing but then i don't know maybe perhaps through algorithms um people have been fed different lines different narratives different hot takes mm -hmm. on things and then they've fallen into those kind of very brexity um like caricatures still do you think it's it's quite i mean there are lots of sort of lines of division i mean the very first sort of form that the the weirdness took was people saying oh yeah it's 5g it's right. 5g is given coronavirus to everyone in yeah. Wuhan. Uh, or there was a Dutch doctor who said, oh, yeah, it, it's definitely the cause. I don't know how, but but I'm sure yeah. it is. And, you know, then it sort of spread over here and there were people actually setting light to, you know, telephone masks, which were doing 5G. Well, not doing 5G in some right. cases. They didn't care. It's just a telephone mask. Uh, and then it sort of um, went underground a bit. Uh, you have people like David Icke, who's a wild conspiracy theorist, suggesting that, that it was all, oh, God, I don't know, I mean, uh, where where the ideas come from, I've no idea. But he, you know, he was early on to the idea that this was not so bad. I mean, if if it had been killing people at the rate that SARS, the 2003 version of this disease, the first one, that has a 10% mortality rate. That is serious. You get that, you know, get it bad enough, you're in big mm -hmm. trouble. Whereas this one has sort of, you know, had 1% mortality at the outset. So you could sort of feel, well, it's, it's not that. Okay, so it's 10 times worse than flu, but it's not, it's not like 10%. Yeah. And I think that sort of gave people room to be complacent, especially because it was killing people who were older. Again, you know, if it had been like the 1918 flu, um, which was killing people who were sort of in wor working age, then possibly the, the response would have been different again. But the fact that it was killing 1%, particularly, you know, concentrated up towards the older ages, meant that you had a lot of space 
for conspiracy theories to develop that actually wasn't happening. I think and I think that was a, quite a strong conspiracy thread, which which was able to be amplified. And people said, no, no, they were, they were, they, they, well, look at these cases. There aren't these cases. There aren't these deaths in the hospitals. The hospitals aren't full. And and they became reinforced. And, you know, this is the classic thing that social networks will also do is to help people who have wacky ideas to find each other. You know, flat earthers, you know, never went to the mooners. Um, and all the you know the conspiracy theories around COVID are just so so many, so multiplicative that it's just hard to keep hold of them. You know, and trying to sort of keep your hands on which one is the one at the moment is is incredibly tricky. You have people who who misread graphs, you know, whether intentionally or not. People who don't understand the difference between PCR testing and what is DNA and what is RNA, and you know, the, the number of people I've seen who've you know, stated things very confidently about PCR have no idea what you know, polymerized chain, polymerase chain reaction actually is mm. and why it works and how it works is, is sort of astonishing. I mean, I say this because, you know, I was a science journalist for you know, 20 odd years. Um, I was talking to scientists all the time. You know, I, I know how scientists tend to be. Um, and I didn't really come across any, you know, wacky nut job scientists. They are always sort of people who are very cautious about what they said. You know, the the Chris Whitties rather than the, the David Ikes, I guess. But you know, somehow with with the pandemic, yeah, they all found each other and they they formed a big party. Yeah, yeah. And you've sort of touched on something there that um, that we've touched on in, in a couple of other episodes here, which is the the the, the sort of side effect that sites like Twitter or Facebook have have had where 20 or 30 years ago you would have somebody in a pub who would express a wacky idea and then all of his mates would shut him down or call him a dick and he'd go home and he'd feel ashamed that he had expressed such a, a silly idea and then that would be the end of it it'd be wrapped up or he would be confined to his mum's basement and uh you know maybe <laughs> he would join some sort of mailing list um but what happens now is this person goes on Twitter, says that the earth is flat, and then 200 people retweet him, and then he thinks he has a point. And then more broadly mm. speaking, that although that's a sort of extreme example with uh, conspiracy theorists, it's also true of people who are just sort of politically aware, if you like, or politically unaware, as the case may be, uh, where they they will feel so emboldened by the 20 or 50 or 100 retweets and you know various weird and wonderful bot accounts that are telling them yeah yeah you keep you keep going yeah that they feel like what they're saying matters more than anything uh more than a scientist more than an engineer or, or whatever like as long as other people are telling them or other accounts are telling them that they have a point then there's a uh, I don't know, like a serotonin release or something that happened. Like there's mm. an uptick in the brain. Very much. Um, yeah. And and that's that's a new thing, right? Like I suppose the the nearest thing you mm -hmm. could compare it to back in the day is if, yeah, like if t <laughs> if there were two idiots in the pub and one of them <laughs> overheard the other one saying, so, "Oh yeah, I heard you earlier talking about that. That's a great idea. Yeah, let's form a militia." It's um, <laughs> It's a bit like the guy in the fast share, though, isn't it? There'd be the three guys in the pub, and there'd be the one guy in the middle, which is Paul Whitehouse. And and one guy would say, "Oh, you know, England, they they played really great, didn't they?" And Paul Whitehouse would go, "Yeah, England, oh, fantastic." And then the other bloke would say, "Yeah, but actually, when you when you look at it, 
Germany were just unlucky. And he said, yeah, yeah, Germany, just unlucky, just yeah, unlucky. Yeah. And, you know, in that sense, Twitter is Twitter is sort of like that. It can sort of be that, you know, whatever, whatever you want to think, yeah, we agree with that sort of stuff. I mean, the, but, I mean, you're you're right that, that people can feel that they're validated, you know, that uh, you'll always find someone who will validate those, those views. And if everyone tells you you're an idiot, that's fine because, you know, they're just people on mm. Twitter. Yeah, and what do they know? And eventually you'll get to the person who, uh, or your people who recognize that you're, you know, fundamentally right yeah. on everything. But I mean, um, what some people have suggested, a really interesting idea I, I got from one of the uh, one of the people I uh, spoke to was that Twitter and, and Facebook should actually have a, should have a, a sort of not interested uh, emoji and also a no, actually, you know, <laughs> a, a whatever the opposite of heart is, you know, a sort of a, a down thumb. Yeah. And that uh, you, you get an idea, of, you know, if you had a sort of, this many people saw this tweet and have absolutely no view on it. Yeah, it just went straight past it. And if you had a thing where people could say, nope, yeah. you know, just the, rather than having to reply, if you could, you know, rather as at the moment you can heart a thing, yeah. you know, to sort of like it or bookmark it or whatever the hell they want to call it. If you had a thing that said, nope, you know, just a little, little emoji yeah. like that, that could be quite interesting as a way of sort of pointing out to people um that no it's not really that simple yeah that's sort of more of a reddity thing isn't it it's like you can mark down things and in theory reddit is more meritocratic um yes whenever i go on uh, go on merit whenever i go on reddit um and i post something i find that the rules to post are incredibly restrictive um so (laughs) here is this amazing meritocratic democratic website that you can you know Things are judged purely on how funny or interesting they are, but it is still like it's quite hard to use. It's quite hard to succeed with that. But that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I I, I didn't uh, include Reddit in the book because I sort of looked at all the events that I was sort of thinking about and all the all the processes, and Reddit just doesn't figure. Mm. Reddit is really you know, apart from some weird occasions when they tried to find the Boston Marathon marathon bomber and really screwed it up and the weird behavior around the 2016 election when they were just all going completely nuts uh and you had a sort of a an echo chamber effect uh which is another sort of social warming Mm. thing um i mean apart from those you know generally reddit actually doesn't have a that malign an influence it's just sort of a bunch of people all sort of nooning along getting on um being very you know niched uh and the meritocratic nature of it Rather than you know viral amplification, you know it's not an indifferent algorithm saying, "Oh look, lots of people have looked at it." It's actual people making choices, and that makes a huge difference. It's not a social warming mm. function; it's much more a you know, as you say, meritocratic. Mm. It's a it's an entirely human sort of way of interacting. And I, I've always thought that Slashdot is rather good like that as well. You know, Slashdot going back you know decades uh where it, you know you have voting up voting down you don't have to see comments if they don't get more than a certain number of votes and i think that that's again that's a really good system because it really it stopped this sort of uh, thing of oh well you know this is going to capture your attention just you wait well, uh doesn't doesn't do I, that I at all i think it's there's probably an element of um that you have like redditors on reddit as well so there is some quality control to what, like, you can't just go on there and ship post yeah. and, you know, drop a few more little words because uh, you'll just get banned. And that's no fun if you're a troll. Um, if you yeah. are the type of individual that you were, that you brought up in your book from the uh, the well, was it called? 
and you're just you know you're going well, on to start some shit um it's probably easier to do that on a site like twitter where you don't get voted down and you don't get banned from yeah uh, from the forum totally. yeah i mean if twitter was to introduce sort of voting up and down for users well yeah rather than just followers which is a different mm. thing then yeah things would be very different um another thing i wanted to touch on is is the 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 difference in attitudes uh in terms of how we should handle um social media use so we all agree that there are problems with with these apps um we all agree that they influence people uh in in ways that we definitely did not expect pre-2016 say um there's there's i suppose there's two trains of thought with it the first one is that people are uh uh, their own selves and it's up to them to be responsible with the products that they use and therefore if you have an issue with facebook then the free market should you know you should all in swathes decide to leave facebook and then choose a different social media app um <clears throat> and and that would solve the problem um the the opposite to that argument if you like or the counter argument is that there should be some sort of top-down regulation that we agree that there is an issue that people are not going to delete these apps because i think the example you brought up in your book was that mm -hmm. one person wanted to de delete the app but their partner's uh, uh soccer team and like everything yes. was being coordinated on facebook so it's it, it really is like yes. ostracizing yourself from your, your yes. group right <clears throat> so we accept that this is unrealistic that most people will leave whatsapp facebook and instagram these these apps are dominant there's mm -hmm. not an awful lot of competition for them so in that yeah if we it if we say okay look top-down regulation make them behave themselves or people have to be responsible and then decide what they want to use themselves which which route do you think we're going to end up going with this well i mean it's rather like global warming isn't it it's you know can't it be both um so you know in terms of what what sort of what are you going to do about uh, fixing climate change well i can't stop china you know burning coal but you know you can buy an electric vehicle you can you know move to electric rather than mm -hmm. gas you can insulate your house all these sorts of things you can do personal things um but governments have to do the the bigger regulation of you know how how you're going to move to carbon zero when you're going to move to carbon zero those sorts of things so similarly with with um, you know the effects of social warming you need the companies themselves to actually accept that they do have these effects and gradually facebook in particular uh is accepting this twitter i think is sort of aware of it but, but doesn't quite know how to get on top of it mm -hmm. um with tiktok it's a bit hard to say what tiktok's effects are i mean it's notable that they do use censorship but it's a it's around things that the chinese government finds uncomfortable so right. uh, there's been censorship around hong kong and stuff um and you know instagram snapchat as you say whatsapp whatsapp is a complicated one because it's not a social network and yet it is used very much socially mm. um and there was an interesting example that the batlin sven by-election that's just been where um there was lots of misinformation being put around on whatsapp uh, so the Labour Party organized groups of its own you know voters and activists who would you know bring people into groups and they would spread their own not misinformation they would sort of you know correct correct the story and mm. uh, so that's a use of, of whatsapp in order to correct political misinformation but it's a huge problem uh, you know the way that whatsapp in particular has affected politics uh, in countries such as india um you know philippines brazil all these countries really do get affected by it and if you opt out of it 
that doesn't stop it happening. You know, you have to sort of be in there trying to trying to reduce it. So yeah, governments governments need to do things, um, but it's a it's a sort of a mixture of you know the governments you know, waving the big stick at the company, saying you know we'll really do something to you if you don't uh, actually take some action yourselves. But the problem is that it's the companies themselves that have to have to move because they're the ones that can move quickly. They can make the changes rapidly, whereas you know legislation is very slow, but the likelihood is that if you let the big legislation come in, you're not going to like it at all. That it will be something which really limits you, that uh, that you're going to find really onerous. So the the sort of threat of legislation, I think, plus you know just individual responsibilities. Like I was saying to you earlier about the you know you get the urge to quote tweet someone and dunk on them, <laughs> and, and you sort of think to yourself, actually, is this going to add to the gaiety of nations? Maybe not. And, you know, you just sort of hold back. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like I remember somebody tweeting me a, a while back something abusive saying like like you, you talk so much shit and i like so, something fairly vague but probably quite accurate like that and um <clears throat> and i just replied back like i mean you should see all of the tweets that i don't act that i actually abandoned yes. like, <laughs> what you're seeing is the stuff that made the grade like this is the good stuff yeah. <laughs> um yeah i don't know I, I suppose one of the big incentives for these companies to to rein themselves in would be that all of us can escape having to sit through uh the was it a congressional hearing or something where they got zuckerberg in mm -hmm. and some of these mm -hmm. senators or congressmen or congress ladies um the questions that they were coming out with were like i mean it was it was obvious that these individuals were not well versed in tech and they mm -hmm. hadn't been briefed um in in, yes. in a way that was going to make this set like how valuable is that session to have the ceo of facebook sat there and you can fire these questions at him and actually in theory get answers um and the questions that are actually coming across are things that are kind of irrelevant and unuseful yeah though again there you know it's it's easy to think oh these people are stupid but actually you know they're not that's not quite how it works what they're doing is performative right yeah, they're actually, they're, to some extent, they're sort of thinking of the social media thing or, or they're thinking about their advertising. How are they going to advertise for their next election? Right. You know, they're, they're getting together clips of them banging on Facebook, uh, you know, banging on Twitter for, for censoring people because it fits into the narrative they want to send. It doesn't matter if Zuckerberg, you know, if they say, why is it that you're censoring, you know, conservative voices? And Zuckerberg, you know, Zuckerberg looks at them and goes, why not? Yeah. You know, they're not going to include that answer. They're just going to have the thing of, you know, you know, Representative Jim Jordan is really hard on, you know, all these social media companies you hate. And that's what it's about. It's performative far more than it is actually yeah. trying to get anything done. You know, I've always thought of myself as a, a fairly cynical person, but that didn't even occur to me. Um... It's not cynicism even. It's it's just, <laughs> it's rationality. It's like, you know, why why would they do that? You know, you have two options, which is one, they're completely stupid, and, and two, they're not completely stupid. And if you sort of discount the first one, because probably wouldn't have got elected in the first place, though, you know, don't rule it out, um, then you have to go to number two and think, okay, so they must have a rational reason for doing this. What could it be? Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, these clips that I saw, uh, <laughs> and they are, like, they are clips, so, you know, maybe I'm being manipulated yes. to some extent, but um, uh, they di it didn't appear to be a sort of, you know, this congressman is coming down hard on big tech. It, it came off as this person doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And like, mm. I'm not, you know, I've only been doing development for like five years. I'm I'm not a sort of computer science guy. I just know my way around, you know, building little websites and stuff. But 
uh for me to know the not the ins and outs but like enough about mobile technology watch a hearing like that and those sorts of questions coming out i was just like oh like who's who has written these questions for him yeah but you know you know about the mobile technology but they know about getting elected well yeah you know which is well, there's two quite different skills i guess so quite different skills you know i i tend to i tend to try to sort of assign rational motives to people you know and i find that you can get a lot further you can predict a lot more if you do that 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 generally if you think that people are sort of generally quite nice you know or they're not mm. sort of malicious um doesn't always work um and that they're rational that they sort of have rational self-interest somewhere near, somewhere under mm. there then you can usually figure out what they're going to do next sure so yeah 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 i suppose if you looked at it like completely you know clear-headed and you said okay on balance of probabilities what was the background to that individual asking that question is it like is he that ditzy is he not briefed mm. a congressman not briefed when he's about to be in front of the cameras he got big offices yeah yeah um yeah okay um so just a, just a couple more questions um mm. i i was curious I, i'm sort of vaguely loosely familiar with the process of uh, writing a book and you send it off and you have an editor and uh, then you trim it down a little bit and <clears throat> i was curious mm. is was there anything that was cut out of the book where you were like ah we not got space to fit that uh, okay all right well there's always sort of little bits i mean but there was a whole chapter about uh, effects on children that had to go because it was just too long right i mean that would have made the book far too long um i mean i felt that there is some sort of demonstrable effect on children mm. Um, but researchers I spoke to, such as Andrew uh, Przybylinski at Oxford, said, no, it's just noise in the data. Right. Um, I, it, it's, what were your, it's what, interesting. What were your sort of speculations then from the outset? Did you, you felt like children who were using Facebook or children who were exposed to these apps were or, or spent hours on YouTube were affected in some way? Or Yeah, I suspected that it would, that it would have some effect on their behavior or mood or something but i wasn't sure what it would be there's a really big um sort of testing regime that the oecd carries out every few years called pisa um and it's a sort of standards and education thing and they test children in maths and in sciences and in english and in reasoning um and they do it for various ages and you can follow it through uh from years past you know, it goes back to 2001, I think. So you can look in the data and you can find the points at which they start asking about computer use and then start asking about smartphone use and then start asking about social media right. use. And they also have a thing which is asking about sort of general happiness and how happy children feel. And it seemed to me that the data says that the increase in social media use is matched with a decrease in overall happiness. And you see it in every country, and you see a pattern where greater smartphone use is correlated with lower happiness. Mm. And you, you know, to the extent that it's, it's a pretty strong correlation, I thought. Um, there's an American writer who is very insistent that this is the case. She um, you know, says smartphones are basically the devil. Um, you know, she's a scientist. It's not like she's some, <laughs> some sort of wingnut yeah. or anything. Um, and she's done various studies, which she says are demonstrative about it. Um, 
the thing is, you know, is the point that we're using, you know, do people use smartphones, which then make them unhappy, or are they unhappy and then they use the smartphones? Yeah. You, know, you see it in girls that they tend to use um, social media, they use smartphones more than boys do, and the girls tend to be a bit unhappier. And it's like, you know, is this, yeah, which direction is the causation running, if there's a causation? Mm. Or is it just one of these things where they're both happening at the same time? that, you know, there's not a link at all, that it's rather like, you know, uh, when ice creams, when ice cream sales go up in New York, murders do too. And it's not because ice creams make people murderous, it's because it's hot and people just get very pissed off with each other. (laughs) So um, the the thinking may be that for for children, they're just looking around the world and going, boy, this is pretty crap, isn't it? You know, that they're sort of being told that uh, the climate is all screwed and they're getting more news about it and there's more depressing news you can get on your smartphone. So maybe it's an effect like that. So yeah, that chapter, that chapter came out and um, that was, you know, that's just how it, how it goes. That's part of the process of being edited is that not everything gets in. Oh. Um, but other things that didn't, that I wasn't able to do. I mean, you always sort of look back and I go, Oh, wait a minute. I should have done about, about this. And I should have done that. But, but no, there's nothing where I go, Oh God, this is a complete, uh-huh. how could I completely miss that? Yeah. Yeah, Cause the process of writing was about 18 months or so. Okay. Okay. And, um, finally, um, this, this is a sort of question that I always, uh, try to close out with, uh, whatever we're talking about, whether it's like health technology or, um, or, or social media or finance and crypto, um, where we're at at the moment is is a situation where I think we're all uh, on a good day just concerned about social media's impact on society and on a bad day really fucking terrified about where it's going to head, how our children might be affected. Um, where do you think, like, what's your head telling you in terms of if the events of today carry through to tomorrow and five years, ten years down the line, where, like, how bad do you think this could get? Well, I think the answer is sort of rather like global warming, actually, which is, you know, your heart says it'd be great if it could really work out, but your head is saying, not so sure. I mean, you know, with social media, at least we have the opportunity to be much more aware of it and to take more direct action. And, and you know, there's an interesting study in the book where people were paid to stay off Facebook. Mm for four weeks around the US November 2018 midterm elections. And the people who stayed off it uh, found that they were much happier, they were less politically polarized, they had more time to do interesting things like you know playing the piano, meeting their friends and uh, reading newspapers, yeah, which is sort of a, a less aggressive form of reading news online. Uh, you know, someone else is picking the news for you, what a radical idea. Um, so it's possible that, that people will start to get the idea that it's not necessary, that maybe it's a bit like smoking, where, you know, it used to be all the rage and everyone did it and it was cool to do it. And, you know, it was like, well, how many packs do you smoke a day? I sort of, you know, and this is my brand. I'm a Winston-Salem man. Yeah. Um, and then people went, wait, this is actually not good for us, this smoking stuff. And, you know, we can demonstrate it. Possibly we'll start to see that. Possibly we'll start to get the companies themselves saying oh yeah this this thing that we've done actually isn't good i mean i don't know if twitter would ever roll back the quote tweet but you know it'd actually be a be a thing they could make it harder to retweet you know that you would have to sort of fill in a capture or something yeah i mean they've made it harder already to retweet 
uh, to just retweet a news headline. I saw that. You can't just sort of bang on it. Yeah. Um, they say, actually, have you read this? You know, do you know what it says? And so, so they're sort of being mindful about about it in that respect. So, there's more there's more optimism, I think, possibly about it, and a bit more recognition. And you know, I would hope that people might actually read the book and go. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, this does have a bad effect, and yeah, we should be a bit more mindful of it. I think, and I think that just being mindful can have a huge effect on your attitude to it. You know, like I say, I found it for me, um, and uh, yeah, I happened to be talking about it in a pub garden the other day, and and a guy at the next table said, "Yep, I I deleted my Facebook account. Best thing I've ever done." Really? So yeah, it can happen. It's completely spontaneous. Quite weird, but. But yeah, I, I've heard that from people. You know, I've got another friend who, who, and she told me she had done the same. You know, she used to go on Facebook solely in order to find out what her racist uncle had been saying. Right. And uh, she used to sort of slightly torture herself with it. Um, but she deleted her Facebook account altogether, and she's like, "Don't know what he's saying. Don't care." It's, so, you it's know, a... not knowing what people say can actually make you happier. Yeah, it's it's a, a tricky thing to weigh up, though, I think. Like, when, when you're a parent, for example, you have all these photos mm. of your children on your Instagram or your old Facebook and stuff, and there's definitely there's an argument there that, well, you took them with your iPhone, so they're all stored in your iCloud anyway. Um, but mm. there's this sort of, yeah, fear of losing record of old activity um, and then being ostr ostracised from like if i left my whatsapp chat groups and and mm. i've sort of you know soft lobbied that we should move away to signal for example uh -huh. and i i chat with my brother on signal um but there's it, it it's sort of who's going to make the leap first and no one ever does <laughs> because they, like, they know as soon as they leave like we're, we're all such a bunch of assholes that if one person left we'd find it funnier to just like let, <laughs> leave them right um but uh, but yeah, so there's uh, there's a lot of uh, at play there and a lot to consider before you can actually hold your finger down and go, yeah, okay, delete that. But I suppose mm -hmm. there's a safety in it in the sense that you can always download it again if you did need that. But so. also, but but yeah, you know, if you think about it, just sort of step back from it for a moment for a moment. That Facebook stuff. How often do you refer to it? I mean, it's like you know, oh, yeah. it's like having old newspapers in the attic, isn't it? It's like you know, are you ever going to read them? Are you really going to read them? You know, um, no, really. you know, you get a magazine delivered every week that you actually read online. Are you going to read it? Are you really going to sit down and read it? Well, also, it's You're like probably not. It's like you were saying a minute ago. Does it make me happier when I see these pictures of me looking way younger and fresher? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk me yeah about. yeah very Marie Kondo yeah does Facebook bring you joy yeah um I don't know I, I think it's interesting what you you touched on a second ago as well like um you know is it is it the the app that's making people more miserable and so if I put myself in the mind of a you know 13 year old girl if her Instagram feed is flooded with images of women that look in a certain way and she's comparing herself to these women there's going to be some element of misery that's going to come from that um but equally maybe she fucking loves instagram and seeing all of these images um mm. and she's just not a very socially confident girl yet and there's an element of sort of you know feeling quite miserable generally and and then she goes on to instagram like it's do you know what I mean? Like, it's... but does that, does Instagram then validate her, or does it taunt her with you know images of a person that she can't be, or that she isn't, mm. that shows her the gap between who she is and 
what might be. I mean, you know, it used to be you'd have to go down to the newsagents and buy a magazine that would then have circles of shame to show you these these supposed amazing celebrities being completely, you know, crap and covered in cellulite and all that sort of thing, which would which would bring them down, but it would also have this effect of making you, you know, reminding you, actually, yeah, they're human as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you see the tricks that sort of Instagram influencers get up to to make themselves look beautiful and the, the hours they have to spend over mm. it, um, you can sort of imagine that, you know, someone on a rainy day in Blackpool doesn't feel very thrilled to be shown it. You know, it's the, it's the sort of... Yeah, we're social animals. We're we're sort of you know we, we, we want to know where we fit mm. in the the huge pecking order, and that sort of says to you, yeah, you're a long way down, and and that's possibly just this insidious way. You know, it's another it's another form of you know not warming, but it but it sort of irritates you. It, it just rubs away mm. at you, rubs away a bit at your self esteem and. And, yeah, that's the sort of thing that also can cause resentment a bit, I think. But it's also there's a sort of crunch point there, isn't there, in that it, it's you've got this influence coming in from this side saying you're not as good as this celebrity, you you don't have perfect teeth, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got this other influence coming in from this side, which is maybe you don't feel like you fit in, you don't have an awful lot of friends. And when you go on this application, then people talk to you, people, like you're involved, you're, well, yeah. you know? yeah. That's that that can be the positive side. Yeah. And yeah, I mean that's very much what we do want. Mm. We want the positive side, not the negative. You want the you want the friends who are actually, you know, lifting you up rather than the people jumping into your comments saying, You're fat. Yeah. Whatever. But the difficulty is that it's so hard to, to have the one and not the other. Yeah. You know, you have to be you have to be so so sort of devoted to, you know, I'm okay, I'm gonna have a private account and I'm gonna have just these people. And, you know, the, so the, the apps don't make that easy. They don't start from the premise of, okay, you're just going to have a few friends and they're just going to be these people. You know, they're just like, hey, tell everyone in the world about yourself. Yeah. Upload your address book to us and we'll find all these people and make them see everything that you say. And, oh, and they gamify yeah, that's, everything. That's, that's, like, yeah. if you, get a, if you mm-hmm. get a tick, then you, you feel good. If you get, you know, a comment, then it's immediately alerted to you. Mm. You feel like you've won something. And, um, yes. The, yeah, it's a constant sort of, it's like Las Vegas with all the lights and, and stuff. Right. It's, you know, it's exactly that. It's the whole mechanism of, you know, uh, you know, you go on Facebook and there's all these little red circles with numbers in them. It's like, oh, I've, I've really won. I'm winning Facebook because look at all the friends and the friend requests I have yeah. from people I've never heard of in Kazakhstan. Wait until they bring in their cryptocurrency, though, and then you have genuinely <laughs> what, like, they, they award you like one F dollar or whatever for every friend request you get. Ooh. Um the bank of facebook that's a much that's a much different and much scarier um idea i think but yeah yeah well let's hope uh let's hope we're away off from that um we yes. have run out of time charles um but thank you so much for joining me uh this evening and uh i implore anyone to um to go and check out your your book it's called uh social warming uh i'm just trying to find the end of it oh yeah dangerous and polarizing effects of social media and um you can grab that have you got a sort of preferred bookshop that you'd like to direct people to uh any independent bookshop any any bookshop that sells it actually and it's also in the the online ones of, of all forms and there's an audio book which i narrated which took three days three and a half days and i tell you newsreaders they earn every penny that they get <laughs> the sort of things that they stop you for when you're doing the narration of an audio book yeah you cracked your knuckles there oh, really yeah yeah gosh yeah 
everything. So the narration does not have those noises because there was a lot of retakes. Yeah. And I'll tell you, trying to say algorithmic amplification more than once is quite the challenge. Yeah. Well, this is why I'm not going to have a producer. For... <laughs> I'm, I'm staying crushingly independent. Um, it's wise. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Mr. Charles Arthur. <laughs>